Cash Color Cannabis, a high level of conversation on live hip hop TV. Um, not at the studio just yet. I'm still in the house right now doing my thing like most people are across the country. Um, but I'm de- I was dedicated to bringing you another another episode, another um, edition of a high level of conversation, which is Cash Color Campus podcast sponsored by 610 Organics tonight. Um, I have a special guest in the building. Um, he was supposed to be here um, actually last month, I believe. Yeah, he's supposed to be here in studio. But um, we were just talking about how COVID-19 shut us down. So uh, we had to do this virtually tonight. But I have my man Tahid Chappelle in the building, man. Tahid, how you doing tonight? Hey, man. I'm living. I'm blessed. Every yes, day. you are. Yes, you are, man. I told you I, told you, I was joking before we got on that you and Herb are down with the uh, We Ain't Got a Haircut crew yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm struggling, man. I'm struggling. But, you know, when I get that first cut after all this, oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> I feel you, man. I feel you, man. Hey, well, before we get started and get deep into the conversation, um, let people know who you are. And tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. For those who don't know me, uh, my name is Tahit Chappelle. Uh, I live in Philly, uh, the great city of Philadelphia. Um, I work in the media. I've been part of the uh, media for about eight years now. I've worked in four years in local TV. I've worked at the Washington Post for two years. And then most recently, I worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is our local newspaper. Um, and then I just recently just had the, um, the blessings to get an, an, another job now, which will be focusing on the intersection of how the criminal justice and carceral systems are covered by the media and working with communities that are impacted by the criminal justice system to help kind of inform journalists on how to better cover uh, those topics. So um, that change just happened recently. Um, I'm in a new position now as a project manager. So um, I'm very blessed. I'm very happy right now. Hey, that's amazing, man. Uh, You're doing amazing work. Just making sure that um, people understand that the real importance of media because i feel like you know in today's today's society we downplay the importance of um the mm-hmm. actual importance of media you know we use terms like fake media and lame and lamestream media and things like that but we actually need the media the media and we need an honest media to really keep us all sane you know what i mean i think you're doing an amazing job by being still part of this real media that i like to feel like i'm still part of <laughs> and you know what you said is, is is really is really critical honest honesty Um, You know, working in working in and what I like to say, working in commercialized traditional media, which is a whole different section of the media industry. Right. The media industry is a massive ecosystem. Right. What we're doing here is media, but it's not the same as what someone would think as, you know, a traditional TV network like NBC or ABC. Right. There's there's Mm -hmm. different variations of that. So honesty, when it comes to the media, honesty is a is a is an interesting conversation that we can definitely have because. Um, you know, part of my work here in Philadelphia, uh, I get to sit on the board of a uh, association called the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. Yeah. And this is the largest and the oldest association of black journalists in the country. And it focuses on making sure that the media does tell stories from the black community in a very fair and um, in a very accurate um, portrayal. And honesty comes with reporting. You know, we need to be honest about the facts. We need to be honest about what is actually happening to people in our communities. And so um, I'm glad you brought that up because honesty sometimes in the media is very hard to come by. And, you know, it's up to people like us to hold people accountable so that our stories are being shared uh, fairly and accurately. Yes, yes. I, and I thank you for that. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that representation matters. And um, right now it's about really what you see and who you see carrying the media. Um, mm-hmm. Like when I grew up, I remember watching 60 Minutes with my mother and father. And I was always... um impressed by Ed Bradley. Like Ed Bradley was the coolest black I've ever seen in my life at that moment. He's on the news. He had the earring in his ear. He just talked with slang. Like he was cool like that. 
and people like him inspired me to be a journalist. Um, what inspired you to be a journalist, and, and like how early in, a, in your life did you see, did you know that that was going to be a route you were going to take? Um, you know, I actually fell into into journalism. You know, I actually didn't come from a a family that um, consumed the news really heavily. You know, we woke up with Good Morning America, Diane Sawyer, and whatnot, but I didn't really consume a lot of media growing up. Um, but when I went to college, visual media was kind of my entry point. I really um, had a you know fun experience shooting videos, uh, editing. Um, making these video clips um, elicit emotions and reactions for my friends. And, you know, when I got a little bit more um, professional in that manner, working with other students, um, I started going out with other students and kind of recording people's answers to our questions about business, about life, about issues. And, you know, I was told that, you know, that's a form of journalism, you know, asking questions, you know, learning about new things, trying to inform people about topics and issues that you care about or topics and issues that, you know, a community at large cares about and, and bringing that person or that story to, to more people. Um, so, you know, journalism for me was something that I never really pursued. I never thought that it would be impactful. But the more I got to do it, the more I got to tell other people's stories and, and see the impact and the reaction to people, um, that, that, really, that really kind of opened my eyes. And I think, you know, with, with the creation of social media, I think that was even uh, that was even more of a calling that I had about seeing how news and information is shared online, seeing how Facebook and Twitter and Instagram really push um, different stories to people who normally would have never found stories um, by themselves. So um, I was really, really kind of fascinated by the sharing of information and information culture around media and how anyone can now kind of you know pick up a phone and 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 share and create media on their own platforms now. Yeah, and that's amazing, and it's also dangerous to me all at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, especially when it, you know we, we're we're in the light right now where um, Ahmad uh, Ahmad Arbery, you know, and listening to somebody, the, the the whole the whole um, we can we can just arrest you when we feel like it is part of this media cycle I see on social media where people feel like um, you're it's, it's it's like this 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 insane amount of power you believe you have, you know, and 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 yeah. I really think that it's just insane to see how people just really take it, and I think social media is such a toxic place. Because of what you said, you have the ability to just pull out a phone and just become a reporter out the blue without having to follow some of the same guidelines that you might have as a follower, as, a, as an actual reporter. You know, I've been watching the story float around, the, a totally false story about Takashi 69 signing the Rock Nation. And I said to myself, you know, yeah, exactly. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Matter of fact, Takashi's people had to come out and say it didn't happen. <laughs> but I'm, I'm listening to it and I'm like, you know, this is crazy because if I would have put that on my blog, somebody would have called me out and said, it's not only not only is it not real. But I'd have to um, I'd have to act on that. I have to speak about, you know, I put up something that was dishonest. I have to um, mm -hmm. attribute to that. You don't have to do that on social media. You can just delete a post and go about your day and, and never tell somebody that you put up misinformation. Yeah, you know, I, I think something that is very lacking um, just in our general um, daily lives. And, and this doesn't come from the media either is media literacy is, is the ability to discern what is true and what's false. And also, if you want to be able to tell a story, how can you tell a story accurately? How can you actually report and find the right facts and know that they are the right facts, that the sources and the people that you're talking to aren't lying to you? Um, I think kind of the fun part about being in journalism or at least working in media as a professional is is working on your BS detector and kind of being able to be suspicious. I mean, saying, is that really true? Like, would 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 Rock Nation really sign Takashi 6 ix 9 knowing all exactly. the things that he has and, and the history that he carries right now? 
highly unlikely, but people sometimes, you know, we're not taught, we're not educated on how to pause and really evaluate information in front of us and say, is this true or is this not? And we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it sometimes too. And, and it's a work in progress. And, you know, social media is changing every time. Information is getting to people differently all the different times. So, you know, it's never like we're ever going to be fully on top of it, but we must stay informed and must be prepared on how we can kind of, you know, gauge what something's legitimate and when something's kind of BS. Yes, definitely. So uh, speak to us about your first professional job. Um, what was your first professional job in the press? Um, so of all places, I landed in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, not the first not the first state that I had ever imagined. But what had happened was in college, I had a really smart professor who was um, who's a well-known um, sports writer, actually. Um, he wrote a, a really well-popular, a well-known book about Michael Jordan called The, uh, the Life, I think, of Michael Jordan, um, Roland Lazenby. And he came in one day and he was like, what are you guys doing about this thing called Twitter? Because I think social media is going to change the entire game. This was in 2011. Um and he said that, you know, if you're not branding, if you're not blogging, if you're not talking about the things that you care about, if you're not networking with other journalists on social media, you're not going to be a part of this. You're not going to be part of this change in, in the media industry. So through him and through my kind of, you know, diving into uh, social media, I was able to connect with some journalists who were actually creating a job at a TV station in Arizona. And so I talked to them. I said, listen, like I'm new to social media. You know, I don't have a, a professional background, but I do have some internships working in local TV. I can talk your ear off about how to use social media, how to build a brand, et cetera. And, um, you know, they, they threw me a bone. They, they, <laughs> they, they gave me a job offer and I became a social media producer for a, a local TV station in Arizona. And that was my first job. And I, and I did that job for two years. So um, that, was, that was quite an experience. Arizona, um, beautiful weather. First off, beautiful weather um, for like nine months of the year, and then it turns into 120 degrees uh, <laughs> the other, you know, four months. So um, it was it was an interesting job, and it, and it was a good experience, and it was a good way to get my foot in the door. So I have a lot to thank social media for that. For that, awesome. So how did we find you in the world of cannabis? Like, what 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 led you to into cannabis media after working in traditional media for so long? Oh, cannabis. Oh, cannabis has. Honestly, it, it reignited my my love for for um, you know the work that I'm actually doing now, which is reframing the narratives that you know people thought were the truth. So with cannabis, I suffer from a chronic condition called ulcerative colitis, which is similar to uh, Crohn's disease. And I became a um, a patient in Arizona. That was the first time I ever even knew that cannabis was legalized um, for medical purposes in Arizona. Um, in, in 2012. Um, so when I became a medical marijuana patient, you know, I was very naive to, to, the, to the industry. I was very naive to, to the movement. And I didn't really understand my position or my role with trying to tell people and educate people about medical marijuana. So when I moved around a couple times in the industry, I ended up working at the Washington Post in DC for about two years. I went to a journalism conference that happened to be in Denver, Colorado. And this was right after Denver had legalized um, cannabis for recreational use. And I was sitting listening to a, a cannabis panel, and there was a, um, an editor uh, at the time called Ricardo Baca, who had worked for the Denver Post. You had interviewed him. You and I talked yeah. about this. Um, he had worked for the cannabis, and he got up and basically said, listen, what you know about cannabis and what you know and what you might think you know about the war on drugs is a lie. Like, everything is a lie. Um, the media played a pivotal role in sharing this information. 
media played uh, an instrumental role in creating and helping the government create mass incarceration because of its lies. Um, cannabis is not a drug or cannabis is not illegal. It was never illegal. It should have never been, um, you know, a schedule one narcotic. Um, it was always medicine. It was always free. And more people and more journalists need to start talking about this, specifically journalists of color. We need to start talking about this because we all played a role in, in spreading this misinformation and ultimately harming our communities by the stigma, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I, I didn't really understand. I learned a little bit about the war on drugs very briefly, but I didn't really know about that. And when I just started researching, when I started reading books, you know, my eyes were open. And, you know, I, I think I think once you start understanding just kind of the overall motives behind the war on drugs, there's no going back. You have that information now, and it's almost a duty to, to really spread that information and saying, listen, like we were all lied to. Um, and there's, there's, the, there's enough evidence. There's enough evidence out there to show that cannabis should have never been um, a schedule one narcotic. It was made to, to you know, um, completely destroy and decimate people of color, black and brown communities. It was made um, a narcotic to, to stop people in California from using it who are suffering from AIDS. Um, it was a way it was a way to create money and profits off of off of people by incarcerating them. And, you know, that really ignited my my passion in trying to just spread the word. You know, I'm a medical marijuana patient. It's still a hard conversation with some people to even have that conversation about incorporating cannabis um, for their own health. You know, there's plenty of studies out there that we know that cannabis does help alleviate some pain and mitigate some pain with certain conditions. Um, that should be an option for people. And that was an option for people. It was in the American pharmacopoeia up until like, I think 1941, where doctors were able to prescribe tinctures of THC and cannabis. And so, you know, it was always available up until a certain point. And, and it's always been kind of my intention to just say, listen, like, look at the information that's out there now. Look at all the documented information from, from, from public officials, from the government itself, from well-known um, experts, there's a bunch of different information from actual resources out there that will really reverse a lot of the misinformation or the stigma that comes and has been attached to cannabis since. And so using my platform, <clears throat> being part of the media industry, I've been really focusing on the accountability aspect and really looking at media institutions and saying, listen, you know, these companies, these media groups have all played a role in their past um, you know, reporting have to own up to that. You know, we have to be honest about that. Going back to that honesty thing, we have to be honest that we played a pivotal role in, in, in creating a stigma against cannabis and cannabis users, and that negatively and disproportionately impacted black and brown communities. Yes. And so now it's, out, it's up to us as, you know, journalists or, or people who are interested in media to really start reversing that narrative. And I think it's a, you know, it's a duty of all of us to, to be a part of that. So I'm just trying to get more people to realize that. I'm trying to spread the word and, you know, hold people accountable as I do this. Hey, well, you're doing a great job. And I'm also, I just heard, just gave me a message. If you can move a little bit more back into the light that you were in, just so we can make sure that we can. Yeah, see I'm trying to, my lighting's bad in this. Here, let me see if I can move here. What they say, we're, we're in a new world now. This is things you gotta, you gotta, you gotta deal with. So if you're listening to the podcast later, we're literally doing this live as well. We're getting technical difficulties solved. 
Here we go. That's that better? Yeah, that's a lot better. That's a lot better. Um, I thought you made a great point, you know, and, I, and one of the things I really believe is that representation really does matter in media when it comes to bringing people of color or getting people of color involved in anything. And representation from higher levels, from ownership and from just being a face of something is, is important. Um, do you share that same view that, that seeing more people of color like yourself and like myself even, having podcasts, having media outlets, or even taking the reins and saying that, um, you know, trying to hold different media 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 outlets accountable, just being that vocal and that vocal, that media, having more people of color in in media in media will do that and help bring more people of color into the space, especially cannabis. It is a necessity. Yeah. It is it is an ultimate necessity to be reflective of the communities that we're trying to cover. If the media wants to diversify its readership, diversify its audience and reach new people in different communities, then it needs to bring people, especially people from those communities into the fold and, 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 and you know, equip them to become reporters, equip them to become producers and train them on how to create media and, and talk about the issues that lead to change. Um, the media historically has been terrible at diversity. It is still terrible in diversity. If you check, um, there is a ASNE survey where they do a, a yearly survey of newsrooms to talk about their, their diversity numbers. We're woefully behind in any sort of uh, representation, whether it's people of color, whether it's the wage gap between men and women um, or LGBTQIA. Um, there's, there's a lack of diversity everywhere in this industry. And that type of um, that lacking of diversity is so reflective in our coverage. It's, yeah. it's every day we see, we see what happens when there's no diversity. We see what happens when there's a lack of diversity, when people of color do not get to have the opportunity to tell their stories. Um, there is a Brookings Institute um, story covering um, kind of the projection of the U.S. Census in 2050, I believe. There's going to be more people of color than white people in this country by 2050. So what is the media going to look like then? If we're not reflective of it now, in a couple decades right now, how are we going to actually be reflective and be able to accurately, fairly, and honestly tell stories that are impacting people of color if white people are the minority telling these stories with all these big platforms? It's imperative that we get more people in the industry. Yes. It's imperative that we train our own peers, our own um, you know, networks on how to tell stories accurately and fairly so that we can build rapport, so we can make change happen. And, and get those issues um, to front and center to the authorities and the officials who have the power to make things happen. Um, it's, it's sad, you know, there was a, and you probably know about this too, the Kerner Commission came out more than 50 years ago mm -hmm. where Lyndon B. Johnson was trying to understand the, the protest and, and the um, fallout happening from the civil rights movement following the um, assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. He got a commission to listen, like, why were all these types of outbreaks happening around the country, specifically in urban populations. Yeah. And the Kerner Commission came back and said most of this can be attributed to a lack of diversity within the media, a, a, um, a stereotyping of these outbreaks, and literally falsifying information that the media passed as truth and that completely swayed public opinion on black and brown communities. And one of the call from the, from the Kerner Commission was to get more black people into the media industry was to train black journalists so they could actually tell these stories accurately and have a better portrayal of their communities so that there wasn't so much backlash and there wasn't so much tension, these racial tensions between white and black communities. The Kerner Commission came out 50 years ago and it came out with strict guidelines and approaches on how to do this. The industry has not even made any sort of attempt. We've no. added a couple of people of color, you know, from time to time, 
The problem is, is that we bring in journalists of color and we put them at the low end of the totem pole and they don't rise. You know, or, we, or you make them assign only things of color. Like there's no, there's no, uh, there's no ability for you to ever branch out past what you look like as far as coverage. Yeah. You know, there's also yeah. that. And so, you know, there, the, the, the diversity conversation is a conversation about power. It's a, conver- a, con- a conversation about who gets to actually control the narrative. It's a conversation about how do you convince people who are in power, mostly old white men, that we need to be focusing on these issues this way because this is the best way to tell it. This is the most accurate and fair way to tell it. Um, it's always a conversation about struggle, about power. And so, um, you know, I will always be in this fight to have more representation. Um, and I'll always be in the fight to say, listen, if the mainstream media, if commercial media is not going to tell um, the narratives that we need and we know to be true, then we need to take control of that and tell them ourselves. So. Yeah. Part of that for you is our color of cannabis. Like I remember when I first heard about the event, I thought it was amazing because, again, we're bringing a, we're bringing together media people in media to speak about exactly what we were just talking about right there, how we could bring more people of color into this space. Uh, speak mm-hmm. to us about the color of cannabis and why you felt it was necessary. So when I became an executive board member of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, um, I had the privilege of just tossing around a couple of ideas that our nonprofit wanted to focus on. You know, being a black media nonprofit, we wanted to talk about different issues and bring our community members together and our journalists together to talk about things that we thought were really passionate or things that we thought were overlooked or underreported. And so me being a, a cannabis patient, I said, listen, like, you know, medical marijuana is still very fresh in the state of Pennsylvania. In Philadelphia, with a 44% Black population, with a 25% poverty rate, there's a lot of conversations that are happening about the impact of medical marijuana and the future impact of what legalization of cannabis could look like, because we know that's not going to be equal for everybody. And we know that people who want to get into the industry are not going to be able to get into the industry for a myriad of reasons. And so um, the board was like, yeah, sure, like you, you're very passionate about it. You know, you have the experts and people that you know in your network. You know, let's put something together. And you know, I don't think anyone was expecting us to do a, a day long conference, but I, you know, I just had the network and I had the people that I had met and talked to um, for for a while to say, hey, listen, like, can you come down to Philly for one day and just like lay the groundwork? You know, talk to journalists, talk to community members, Philadelphians, and those in the Philly region, just about what legalization means. You know, you don't have to go in and advocate for legalization. You don't have to go in and tell people how to sign up for a medical marijuana card, but just lay the groundwork of what cannabis really is, why is it important, and why people of color and black journalists specifically should be covering this more more seriously. Yeah. And um, that day-long conference was funny because I remember some people kind of coming in, snickering, asking, like, where's the weed at, where it, where it is? And then we have all these people, these experts, all dressed up like super professional and you can just see people's eyes pop out of their heads like their jaws drop the level of conversation and engagement was so much that people the the one complaint that we had was that people didn't have enough time to talk to the panelists because they were so engaged they had so many questions and that was part of reversing the stigma you know that was that was part of saying listen like you think a person who consumes cannabis as a typical regular stoner we don't look like that all the time we don't always look like that and we may never look like that there are professionals among us who use cannabis, who don't look like portrayed in the media, and certainly not what's been portrayed in the media in the past. So the color of cannabis was a good way to lay down the foundation for Philadelphians specifically to say, listen, we're a black city. We have a lot to win and a lot to lose when it comes to legalization. As journalists, we should be talking about these types of opportunities and what's at stake for our community members. And so um, that was a really good conversation. That was a really good day. 
Great, great, man. And I know um, I was I was blessed to actually be part of the Canada and Atlantic Conference, which is which uh, to me seems like a bigger version of, of Color of Cannabis. Uh, but we, of course, of course, because of COVID-19, we didn't get a chance to go through with that. Um, speak to people about the Canada Atlantic Conference and uh, what is the future for that? Do you see do you see it going on sometime this year, possibly? So the Canada Atlantic Conference um, was was um, kind of version two of the color of cannabis. Okay. Um, I was very proud about the color of cannabis because we had 85% speakers. Um, all the 85% of the panelists were all people of color. They were all experts of color, um, which is sometimes very hard to find in different um, cannabis uh, conferences. You know yes. it. I know it. We go to these cannabis conferences and they're just a bunch of white men talking all the time. Like that's not reflective of who's actually impacted. That's not reflective of the actual underground market that's been, you know, holding the industry together for all these years before legalization. And then 99% of our um, presenters were women of color. Um, so like, it's not hard to do. So the Can Atlantic conference was, was kind of a, a version two of that. It's, it was activating my network within the mid Atlantic region and say, listen, like New Jersey, we know from the news that New Jersey is going to put up to voters to legalize cannabis, um, this November. Right. And this was last year. So, um, I was talking about like, there's these discussions. We saw the big push for New York and a big push for New Jersey to legalize in 2019. I'm like, okay, the conversation's happening. And once one state actually legalizes, the domino effect is going to happen at some point. Yes. So um, we got together, you know, with the executive board and I said, listen, like, I want to be able to have an understanding of what's happening around Pennsylvania, because ultimately what happens around Pennsylvania is going to influence Pennsylvania too. And it came out of that conversation of saying, listen, like, why don't we figure out like a state of the state report? Why don't we get people who are on the ground doing the hard work to educate outreach and, and push to legalize let's get members of those communities from every state in the mid-atlantic region to come into philly for two days and over the course of course of two days talk about here's what's happening in my neighborhood here's what's happening in my state here's how we're pushing for legalization here's the roadblocks that we're kind of running into but here are some solutions that we think might work to get the you know move the needle forward and then with the media component would be here's the issues and the stories that we feel like are being underreported or overlooked and here are some ways that we think journalists could do a better job in covering these areas providing a, a constructive criticism of sort on on how journalists can get better at covering the uh, the movement within these different states so over two days we would have um, presenters from new york new jersey delaware maryland virginia D.C., West Virginia, and Pennsylvania um, come in and basically share this knowledge with everybody. We would get all their networks and all their groups to come in. We're all moving at, you know, 10,000 miles per hour. It would be a good time for all of us to kind of look and say, hey, you know, what's happening in Delaware? Or, hey, what's happening in D.C.? Or, hey, look how, you know, New Jersey got their stuff on the ballot. Like, how can that influence West Virginia? Look how fast, you know, Virginia is moving right now. You know, could Pennsylvania do something similar too? We haven't decriminalized in Pennsylvania across the state. People forget that it's only decriminalized in certain parts of this state. What could we take away from Virginia's movement to see if that could actually be implemented here in Pennsylvania? So the Can Atlantic Conference was this idea of bringing this entire community together um, in this one region and really having these um, kind of bigger just conversations about, you know, what's the impact of legalization around this um, area and what can other people learn and take back to their own communities too. So um, that was supposed to kick off uh, 420 month. You know, I was so pumped for that. Obviously, we that all were. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're going to try to hold it in the end of September. I believe September 26th and 27th. 
Um, what that looks like, you know, depends on when this pandemic decides to stop. But, um, you know, ultimately, there's probably the best opportunities to, you know, hold a virtual conference and still get those pre uh, presenters to have a space to talk about what's happening in their states. You know, I had a really good opportunity to just work with so many good stakeholders and the presentations we're working on were amazing. They were jam-packed full of information um, that will be updated and it'll be pretty easily, um, you know, easily presentable to people. So, you know, I would hope that, you know, we can do something physically in terms of everyone congregating in the space. But ultimately, if the pandemic keeps going, we'll probably have to fall back into a virtual, you know, session, so to speak. But, um, you know, to be, de uh, to, to be determined and we'll see as it, as it gets closer. Well, my fingers are crossed because I, I definitely want to be in the presence of some of these people. You know, um, it's cool to do stuff virtual, but it really is. You know, I, I, I you, 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 could, you really uh, underestimate the the power it is that you, you have when you're around people. You know, mm -hmm. when you when, and you don't really. I guess most people realize that now, be, due to quarantine, being that we're with someone of us are stuck by either by themselves or stuck in a place where you can't, you're not around so many people. But yeah. I am needing that energy, man. <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> that does come back and we are all together in September. I mean, you were a keynote speaker. I mean, we had, we have such a powerhouse lineup of people that, um, you know, thankfully a lot of the, the, a lot of the sponsors, a lot of the speakers and presenters were all ready to still do this. So I, I'm just grateful to still have that support and I'm looking forward to, to uplifting everybody and in any way, shape or form that this comes out to be. All right, that's what's up, man. Um, so what advice would you give to somebody who, say, wanted to get into um, media from the cannabis side, who's coming out of school right now and they're thinking to themselves that um, their best path right now would be trying to tackle something in the cannabis space? What would your advice be to them was, as far as how to, um, what track to take? So first advice that I tell everyone is do your research, like yeah. do your research about cannabis, know the war on drugs, read a couple books. I mean, I, I have a bunch of book recommendations that I would give out to anybody, you know, three of them, first off being the new Jim Crow, which is a good, you know, yeah. intersection of criminal justice and cannabis, because that's mentioned a lot. Um, Smoke Signals by Martin Lee, who is actually the um, uh, co-founder of Project CBD. Uh, it's a great website about CBD. Um, but Smoke Signals is by far one of the most dense but most heavily researched books that I've ever read. And then The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herrera. Um, rest in peace to that guy. Um, very, very kind of like all over the place in that book. But it does a really good uh, job at kind of just showing the hypocrisy of the government and the media on how it came um, as, a, as it um, pertains to cannabis use and, um, and facts around cannabis and hemp. Um, but do your research first, right? Second, network, network, network. Reach out to people like you, you know, talk about, hey, what are you doing in this space? You know, how can I get involved? How can I participate? How can I support? Um, look for people who are looking for writers, looking for people to produce content as well. Um, follow journalists who are, who are doing this type of work. Um, Dan Adams up in the Boston Globe. The Boston Globe has one of the best cannabis um, teams that I've ever seen in the country. Um, Politico has has a new team that just came out that talks about cannabis from the policy perspective at the federal and the state level. Um, look at what journalists are doing, look at what other media professionals are doing and, you know, emulate, you know, create a blog, you know, as you're looking for jobs, as you're, as you're pitching ideas, connect with different freelancers and talk about, Hey, you know, what are some issues that, you know, are not being covered? What are some issues that, you know, I could be working on or reporting on and lend a hand because those types of connections are going to go a very long way. Um, you know, I got a lot of the jobs that I got in the media because of those connections that I made on social media. 
you know, no joke, a lot of these job opportunities come because of the personal connections uh, that you make with people in the industry. So if you're really hell bent on being on or being in the media, then make those connections on, uh, on with journalists, you know, get on Twitter, you know, get used to seeing all this information, finding information, doing research, writing on your own, um, getting people to look at your work. It's a, it's a grind. You know this. I know this. It's a grind yeah. sometimes. You have to produce, produce, stay on top of the news. Um, but ultimately, if you're really in, if you're really in for this, um, then this is going to feel second, second nature to you. And um, the connections and the people that you make and the information that you, you get to have and read and the stories you get to tell um, really make everything worth it in my eyes. Yeah. You know, we haven't gotten into your, your, your consumption habits, man. Are, are, are you a consumer of cannabis? When it, and, and how do you consume? Like, what's your favorite ways to consume if you are? Am I a consumer? <laughs> <laughs> you got to ask me, you know, you really got to ask people sometimes. Hey, do you, I don't want to assume that you smoke and I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here about to give you a bunch of run down a bunch of weed questions. Oh, um, yeah. So uh, currently with COVID-19, I've been um uh, scaling back on my, uh, vaping. I used to, I'm a big vaper. I love vaping. Mm. I have a desktop vape. Um, that's amazing. It's called the extreme Q. Um, it was the first desktop vape I actually ever consumed cannabis off of with my uncle in California. Oh my God. I was like, (laughs) I've I've also had the PAX too, which is a great little, uh, vape that you can take to go. Um, I actually just started dabbling in, um, in, uh, what's it called? Edibles. I started making my own gummies, I use the the Levo machine, and then I use the uh, Ardent um, decarboxylator um, to activate my cannabis. And so I've been making some gummies to hold me over, um, make some uh, infused cannabis oil from coconut oil as well. Um, so yeah, I've been dabbling and moving more into edibles for the time being. That's what's up. So uh, do do you like do you consume do you like consuming flour like like um, joints, blunts, or anything like that? Or are you strictly with vaping and edibles? Oh, I mean, I'm never going to say no to a blunt. No. <laughs> well, wait, wait. In this in this atmosphere, you might want to say no until we understand where everything is going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't, I'm not going to be sharing any blunts anytime soon. I wish I could roll blunts better. I really can't roll blunts as, as well as I really want to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I consume I consume mostly, you know, mostly vaporizing just because I love the fact that you can really taste the terpenes. You know, the terpene profile is a lot oh, more... Yeah. Uh, emphasized and you know you're not combusting and you can use vape weed for later too so i like the kind of like rationing it um but yeah you know preferred preferred is vaporizing i like edibles when i make it i know kind of like the the dosage and then blunts right after that too that's what it is also a shameless plug if you are shopping ardent cannabis make sure you use um, promo code cash color cannabis when you check oh, out your discount shout <laughs> out to now Lindsay. she is an og doing the hard work Shout definitely, definitely. She's a fellow Bostonian like myself, so definitely shout out to, to um, Chanel. Uh, I guess I got a couple, more, a couple more questions for you, and I'm gonna let you get about the rest of your day here, man. Um, talk to Philadelphia is a very important city for America and for Black people overall. Um, mm-hmm. How is the city of brotherly love dealing with these new cannabis laws that, is, that are popping up? So there's a whole lot of opportunity here, and just just in terms of the medical marijuana aspect of it, there are there are 1.6 million people in this city, right? 44% black population. Um, there, there is such a big opportunity to get people registered as medical marijuana patients. Um, the city decriminalized, I believe it was the first big city to decriminalize uh, cannabis possession. You know, you still have to, you still get a fine if you're consuming in public and whatnot. But um, it, was, it was a big push to help lower uh, incarceration rates uh, simply off of uh, cannabis possession and consumption in public. But 
you know, even with medical marijuana being legalized, there's still a lack of information and a lack of access to the, the public transportation system to get people to and from doctors is very difficult. Um, like I mentioned, 25% poverty rate, which is obviously affecting more black and brown communities than white communities, um, stymies the um, sign up process too, because it can be pretty expensive. Um, yeah. You know, doctors in, in, our, in our state of Pennsylvania, um, they don't have to um, adhere to any sort of standardization on how much they charge patients. And because cannabis isn't covered by insurance, if you go to a doctor, they may charge you $100, $150, or even $200 for a recommendation. You may go to another doctor and they may cover it, you know, just for $50 or something like that too. So there's a lot of, um, the, uh, emphasis is on a person to have to do this information themselves or this information gathering themselves in order to become a patient. Um, it's a very pay to participate system. So it's already kind of financially a barrier for a lot of people to become medical marijuana patients. So the growth could be a lot more. People could definitely become patients if it wasn't so financially rigorous. Um, but once you do become a patient, if you're able to become a patient, um, you know, you have access to all the dispensaries. You can go anywhere you want in the state to get it. Um, prices are still, you know, still high. You know, people have been complaining about how high the prices are. And that's that's typically what we see a lot in medical um, programs as well as the prices are way too high. Um, you know, market is still very um, competitive. And I don't blame people for, for going to market or staying with their dealer, too, if they want to. Um, just because the prices are still high. But I tell people that, you know, if you're able to afford it and you're able to get it from a, a dispensary, it is worth it to a certain degree because you know where that flower is coming from. Exactly. Um, it does have lab testing requirements. Um, are they super rigorous? No. But do you get to know where your cannabis is coming from, how much um, THC and CBD is in there, the types of terpenes? It does make you a more informed consumer. And I think the you know, the informed consumer is the best type of consumer, whether you're a patient or you're not, because you can gauge and you can tell now the quality of cannabis that you're putting into your body. And if you're someone like me with a condition that, you know, really, um, you know, you have to be really meticulous about what you put in your body, um, it's a safer mechanism for you to get what you need to alleviate your pain without knowing what types of like, you know, chemicals or, or pesticides or something like that that you may not know of. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the program has, has, has been increasing. Um, I forget what the actual number is now um, with, with signups. And COVID-19 has actually made it um, a little bit easier for people to get cannabis in a way. Um, basically, back in the day before uh, the pandemic, a caregiver could only have five patients um, registered to them to get their cannabis and deliver. Um, now a caregiver can have as many medical marijuana patients they want, and they can go out, get their cannabis, and then deliver it to a person. Right. Right? We have curbside pickup now at dispensaries where um, blood tenders can go out of the dispensary, get orders, come back, and then deliver it um, straight to the curb. And there's a push to get delivery now so that you know dispensaries can now actually send out um, you know cars and everything like that to actually deliver. We don't have a delivery system set up. Um, there's also a push in Pennsylvania, low key, but, you know, one that's always a very popular conversation is home grow. You know, there's patients out there who can't have access, who can't drive to the dispensary where they don't know a caregiver, you know, within, within, you know, reaching distance to get them cannabis. You know, there's an opportunity for growing as well. Pennsylvania is a very big farm state. There's a huge amount of people with land out in the Western part. Um, but that hasn't really pushed and that hasn't really moved at the state level yet, but those conversations are happening right now. 
Good, good, man. What, what do you want to be remembered for when it's all said and done? Or when do you ever feel like you're done being a, um, a, a trailblazing journalist? What do you want to be remembered for the most? I want to be remembered. So I think I think the conference, the, the Color of Cannabis and the Canalina Conference is something that I think is, is part of this mission. You know, I don't like being in the lim- limelight. I don't like being front of the front of center. I don't like being, you know, in front of the camera. I'm a very shy person by nature. I like to be under the radar, but I like to be the person that, you know, when someone, you know, goes to a program, goes to an event that I organize, that they come back, whether it's three months, six months, years from now, and they come back to me and say, hey, you know, if it wasn't for your event, I would have never met this person. If it wasn't for your event, I would have never been inspired to do this. If it wasn't for your event or your connections, you know, I would have never had this positive outlook or a positive, you know, impact on my life. And, you know, I just want to be known for helping people improve their lives. Um, one thing that I was really excited about for the Canalanic Conference, specifically for April, is that we were going to have um, an on-site expungement clinic. So people who had records that might have had the opportunity to get the process of being expunged, they could have started it at my cannabis conference. And by the end of the year, um, you know, if they were in, in the state of Pennsylvania, by the end of the year, they might have had their records expunged. You know, I'm really looking forward to getting people's records expunged so they never have to carry the weight of something so dubious as a, as a cannabis-related offense that should have never been on the record uh, to begin with. So, you know, when it comes to legacy or, or remembrance is that I want to make an impact um, that helps people's lives for the better. Brother, you're doing amazing work, man. Um, let people know how they can find you online if they ever wanted to connect with you and just learn more about what you're doing or if they're even in the area of Philadelphia and they just want to make sure they network with you. How can they connect with you online? Um, I am, um, I'm all over the internet <laughs> at this point. Um, if you uh, type in on Google, T-A-U-H-I-D, last name C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L, uh, I'm gonna pop up. Like my SEO game is strong. Like <laughs> I make sure that. That's what's up, man. You know what's crazy? This has been a John-free interview for somebody who lives in Philly, man. I haven't heard the word John come out your mouth no, yet. You know, I, I honestly, I feel like, you know, I grew up. So I was born and raised in South Jersey, right? In in, in Sicklerville, uh, Camden County. Shout out to the eight five six. But, you know, I did most of my education in Virginia and stuff. When I came back to Philly, you know, I was very accepted by the Philly community because if you're from Jersey, from South Jersey specifically, you know, you're part of you're part of the community. But the lingo, you know, with John, like, you know, I just I feel like that's for Philadelphians. You know, I, I, feel, I feel like I like it's a, like language appropriation if I say it. And I'm like, you know, I'm not I'm not from Philly in that sense. Like I'm not I'm not from here, from this city to really like make that my own. But I hear that from everybody, though. Like, it'll, it'll eventually come out. You know, if I'm talking with, with someone from Philly, like, it might slip out. But, like, I, ha- I don't really drop it too often. <laughs> bro, I, I, I had to get a John tutorial one time from a friend of mine down here in Philly. Because I was like, bro, does it mean everything? Like, does everything the John get one for you? Anything and everything. It's a John. It's whatever. <laughs> That's what's up, man. Philly, I got I gotta be in Philly one day, man, just so I, I could I could experience this 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 energy. I've never been to Philadelphia. Oh, it's it's honestly it's such an underrated and overlooked city. People look at DC, people look at New York. Um, why I love doing the things that I do in cannabis is because it's to put Philly on the map. Because there's so many amazing people in this city that are doing the hard work. Um, you know, movements that you see in other states that are already progressing, these people are doing it from the ground up and it's and it's just now creating, you know, it's cultivating, it's it's growing bigger. And I want to put people on the map. I want to show people that Philadelphia is where it's at. 
Philadelphia, when we're talking about social equity, if we're talking about economic empowerment, if we're talking about reparations, that Philly is leading that conversation, I want to make sure people know that that's happening here. Great, man. Well, I appreciate your time tonight. We definitely will link up soon in the future. Um, but I do appreciate you for coming through the, on and being a guest for the podcast tonight. Oh, man, dude. Hey, listen, you know, I really appreciate the work that you've been doing. You inspire me to keep pushing, you know, the work that you've been doing. Like when I, when I first called you, man, I was so hyped because, you know, I'm just happy that someone is doing this type of work and, and getting the word out and spreading the information. And uh, I'm inspired by you. So keep doing this, man. I really appreciate it. No doubt. I appreciate your time, man. That's Cash Color Canvas, a high level of conversation on LiveHipHopDaily.tv, sponsored by 610 Organics. We out. Appreciate your time today. Later.